Who dreams about going to faraway places? Well, duh, everybody dreams about going to faraway places. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast, everybody you know, we all do. But the thing about faraway places is that they're far away and they cost a lot and they take a lot of time and there's work and family and life and all that sort of stuff. And one person who knows this extremely well is British adventurer and author Alistair Humphreys. He is the man who coined the term and helped popularize it, majorly popularized it, micro-adventures. And he's recently written a book about staying home and exploring his own backyard. So on our show today, we have Alistair. Welcome to the AJ Podcast. I'm Stephen Casimiro, your host. With me is Justin Hausman. Hey, Justin. Hello, everybody. Hey, Justin, how many miles do you think you've ridden your bike this year? You know what? I have an odometer on it, and I still couldn't tell you. What a good question. Oh, you have an odometer? Well, on my like, cargo. Well, it depends on which bike you're talking about, but my cargo e-bike, which is the daily driver, has an odometer, yeah. Awesome. Well, take a guess. Well, hang on. Is it over or under 46,000 miles? <laughs> Way <laughs> over. I've been, I just, I'm, I'm constantly circling the planet inspired by, inspired by Al Humphreys. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so Al, uh, among his many adventure accomplishments, there's a period of his life where he, over four years, he rode 46,000 miles. Um, he has crossed the Sahara. He's walked the empty quarter. He's gone unsupported across Iceland. He and some mates rode across the Atlantic ocean unsupported. He's done a whole lot of stuff, and I have been in touch with Al for many years, and I'm thrilled to see him via camera for the first time and be in touch. Al Humphreys, welcome so much, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been a big fan of the Adventure Journal from this side of the pond for many years, so it's lovely to chat. Yes, it is. So, so Alistair, as I mentioned, right from the beginning, has a new book called Local, and um, I've read it and enjoyed the heck out of it. And Justin has read it. And man, I just, I found so many things in there that resonated with me. Some of the things that you're struggling with, some of the things that where you're trying to find beauty and maybe places that are not really thought of as beauty. But tell us, like, what is the conceit behind the book? Tell us the prompt. What started you on this? What is this book about? Um, well, first of all, thank you for reading it and thank you for enjoying the heck out of it. I'm going to use that as a quote. Uh, I noticed you just said Justin read the book. No further comment on his opinion of it. Yeah, we'll just leave it right. We'll <laughs> yeah, leave exactly. it right there. He has toddlers. That's so a big deal for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, it has pictures, uh, but also I'm um, <laughs> I'm really glad and relieved that you liked it. Um, reading it from America because it is a very very local British focused book. And the essence of the book is that I didn't really feel comfortable with flying off to big adventures and then trying to encourage other people on my Instagram feed to go off and fly on more big adventures. So I wanted to try and find a way to um, have adventures and be, be in the outdoors without doing that. So I decided to go even smaller than the micro adventures I've been doing for years and to just spend one year exploring the single map that I live on. In Britain, the uh, we have the whole country is mapped by something called the Ordnance Survey. I mean, every country has their own version of it. The nearest I think that I know of for you guys is the one to twenty-four thousand topo series. It's basically a good good level map that you'd use if you're going to go hiking in the in the backwoods or something. And so I bought the one that I live on. It covers about twenty miles, twenty kilometers by twenty kilometers, about. Uh, 12 miles each way. The whole thing's divided up into one kilometer grid squares. And I committed to going out once a week for a year, rain or shine, to a randomly allocated grid square and try to see everything, everything in that grid square. I was a bit worried when I had the idea that it might be really boring uh, because <laughs> where I live, I live just outside a big city. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty boring. It's definitely not very adventurous. And I thought it might be really boring for someone who's just got chronic wanderlust. Um, but yeah, that was, the, that was the premise of the book. I've got the map here. It's a little sort of fold out type hiking map that you might use, but it covers all the town streets and things and the and the suburbs and the railway lines and the factories and just normal, completely normal life. And I think if the book's got anything going for it, it's that it's not a wilderness in Alaska or something spectacular. That is just totally and utterly 
normal. And the premise was that we can all find nature and wildness closer to where we live if we just slow down and pay attention. Two things that are difficult to do in the 21st century. I'm realizing um, right now, I'm very embarrassed to admit this, but behind me on my bookshelf, I probably have 50 topos everywhere, you know, every national park in the country, uh, places in Canada, New Zealand, Europe. I don't have a topo of where I live. <laughs> I, mean, I have my, you know, I have GPS on my phone, um, but I don't, I don't have one for Marin County. I don't have one. I don't have a single one for California uh, outside <laughs> of the national parks. So we, I think I us, adv- us sort of adventurous type people, we have a tendency to be like that, don't we? We think right, adventure means go, go far. Um, and so it's the very opposite of that I was trying to do. Um, when I cycled around the world back in the day, um, you know, you'd get some guidebooks when you went to different countries, like the Lonely Planet guidebook to China or something. So when I got home, I bought myself the Lonely, Gan- Pla- the Lonely Planet guide to Britain. And the reason I did that was because when I'm traveling off in other countries, I'm such an interested person. I, I love just daily life in random countries and I find everything so fascinating. And then I get home and I just, my shoulders slump with these oh, boring mm-hmm. home. And my blinkers go on. I ignore everything. So one thing I was trying to do is get that traveler's mindset and curiosity and enthusiasm and just dump it right into my backyard. So I think you need to buy your local map, Justin. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, didn't I read in the book that you can go on to the, um, your mapping website and, and locate any particular spot right in the center of the map? And so that the printed map that you just held up, is that that you can order like a specific customized map based on any waypoint as center? So the, oh, wow. this, this series made by the British Ordnance Survey originally used to make maps that we could fight the French, like all British things, it involves fighting other people. So the Ordnance Survey, very detailed maps of Britain, and the, the whole country is about 400 maps because we're pretty tiny. Uh, but I guess they were, for the um, commercial market, they thought, hey, this would be a good gift option. So you can, yeah, put your house right in the middle of the map and you can buy it either as the sort of fold-up version that you use to go hiking or a big flat one, uh, which usually when someone, a friend of mine, moves to their new house, I usually buy them their local maps and put framed up in the downstairs toilet so they can just always be planning their <laughs> runs and walks and things. <laughs> ground, uh, down, ground, downstairs ground to- zero. <laughs> downstairs toilet is the um, place of honour in a British home. So if you get anything framed in a downstairs toilet, you've, you've made it. So, yeah, <clears> so they, they can be... Um, um, you can either get the one off your shelf or you can treat yourself to a customized one with your home in the middle. Wow. Do we have that? No. God. Well, no. you kind I of mean, have you can gr- do all kinds of orders, but I don't know that you can just put a pin in it. And- but on the on the, um, the, the your government website for these Topo series, you can just look for wherever you are in the country. And it's massive, of course, and amazing. And uh, download the, the map for where you happen to live or you can right. pay, pay for it to be printed. So, yeah, there's lots of options for getting hold of them yeah well we do i um on the back cover of every issue we do a different topo map which we we pull from that library and some people i think know this some people don't but there's always a connection to something in the issue and sometimes it's really obvious and sometimes i just like to be as devious as i can and see if people can figure out exactly what that is what the connection is and somebody emailed us in the aj um inbox so earlier this this year, and he, and he goes, I have just he goes, I've gone through every story so many times, and I can't figure out what the connection is to the map. And I realized that I had I had taken some reference out of a story at the last minute, and that was the connection to the map. I was like, <laughs> that, poor guy. Comes, that poor guy. I felt so bad. So, well, you that, that, you set sorry, up. Um, sorry, I've got to. I, I, I've got to interrupt you here with a fantastic adventure idea that surely someone now needs to cycle from to all the maps that you have put on all your many um, um, editions of Adventure Journal. That's three strikes like 31 maps spread across the United States. Someone needs to get on their bike and cycle between all 31. I'll just say Uh, right now, if you do that, you get a free subscription. You get a pack of our notebooks and um, something else. A sticker. (laughs) A sticker. (laughs) Wow, that's and a hearty a pat feature. on the back for me. See, yeah. this is this right here is why Alistair like goes and does these big mega things around the world, and I'm just for in my backyard. Like the first thing he thinks of is like you have to go ride to all of those maps. You have to do a <laughs> loop of all of those maps. So, yeah. Well, so you 
there's 400 blocks on your map. And when I first was reading this, I'm thinking, God, how is, this, is he going to do a different grid every single day? Like, how are you going to do this? So tell us about the construct. And then I want to dive into um, kind of what you're like, why you're driving force, force behind this and then what you found like right from the get go. So you you randomized it and you decide you're going to do 52. You could do one every week, right? Yeah. Although I now, having published the book, realized I accidentally did 53. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, you know, like I guess all of us who are into adventure in the outdoors, if you get a map, you start looking at it for great places to go cycling or camping and hiking and things. And I think we all probably who like the outdoors just do that naturally. Um, so I didn't want to just gravitate to the areas that I would always naturally go to, you know, the woodlands or the rivers or the place with lots of contour lines and hills. I wanted to explore the boring looking industrial park or the or the farmland with nothing at all. So I chose so I allocated where I went by a random number thing on the Internet just to spread out where I went. So I think that was a really good thing to do. Um, another thing was I could have just got this map and said, oh, I'll just explore it for a year and sort of amble around. But I find that putting structure and constraints on my adventures Firstly, it makes me actually persevere and keep going on them, but also I think it makes them quite interesting to put some constraints on. So my idea then was one grid square per week, rain or shine, dung, 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 and that would make me see all the seasons and keep plodding away through the year. Um, so one grid square is one kilometre by one kilometre. You know, you could the ones with a road going through, you could drive across that in one minute. You could run across it in a few minutes. You could walk straight across it in... 20 minutes so it's just quite a small area but if you commit to trying to see every street every footpath every bit of woodland to learn about every bit of nature that you see along the way then suddenly a kilometer becomes as large as you want it to be and I thought that there wouldn't be much in some of these grid squares but I'd quickly realized that there was so much there's essentially an infinite amount of stuff in anywhere once you start to look and look and look and to make myself look and look and look I tried to take good photographs each week so I took a camera not just my phone a proper camera to really try and take the best photos I could and if that was like a, a burned out old car then I'd try and take a beautiful photo of a burned out old car um, and I used a fantastic app called Seek uh, made by iNaturalist which you um, you're both nodding at, you know, uh, oh, yeah. you, a, you, mm. you aim your phone at a plant and it tells you the name of it. And suddenly it's not just a random little flower. It's, it has a name. And it's, a you have a kin- it's a dicot. It's always a dicot. It's always a dicot. It's always a dicot. But it gives you then a connection to it. And so then I, and everything I saw, I'd write some notes and I'd come home and Google what I'd been seeing and I'd learn about stuff along the way. So this random little plant, I'd learn the name of it. I'd come home, I'd Google it. I'd learn about the, I'd know the British folklore for hundreds of years of using it for medicine or I'd learn about the history of burned out cars. So just I would come home and Google what I'd seen and then I'd write it all up. Um, And my fears that one small map would be boring and limiting for a year quickly disappeared into a realisation that, crikey, I cannot begin to see this map in one year. There is a lifetime's study here if I chose to do that. Were you, have you lived in this area for a long time or is it like, did you know most of these places already or have you only been there for a few years and this was kind of you exploring a little bit? So I've lived here for uh, 14 years. So a lot of the stuff that you might have seen me micro adventuring over the Mm -hmm. years is based locally around where I live. So I've slept on lots of hills, ridden my bike and uh, camped in lots of places. So I reckoned that I probably knew the certainly the countryside aspects of it better than most people uh, there were little there were t- random little towns and villages that I'd never been to in my life uh, but I, I actually once I started going even smaller and slower than micro adventures I realized that actually I'd only scratched the surface and actually on the micro adventures I'd always just think oh I'll go to those lovely woods oh I'll go to that nice hill I wouldn't think to go to these other places so it really was a, a big discovery of seeing lots of things. And then to to finish off the year for a sort of grand finale, I decided to try to cycle through every single grid square on the whole map in one continuous journey, which turned into a route planning plate of spaghetti. I mean, it was this crazy, wiggly, windy route of just zigzagging around. And doing that, I realised that there was so much stuff that I'd not seen even in this year of wiggling around. So, um, yeah, I 
the, the more you look, the more you realize you haven't seen anything. This has been, Steve and I talk about this all the time. Well, I usually say it. I'm sure he feels similar, but one of my goals in life is to, like, I'll, I'm not, I'm never, li- I live in Marin County, California, you know, beautiful place. I'm going to live here my whole life. And my main goal is to just know every, not even, not even close to the depth of what you just described. My main goal is to like learn every trail, to know every species of tree, to, if a bug crawls out, to kind of know what that is, to know what the plants are. I mean, like that is, that to me is heaven. And I'm trying, I want to get there at some point, you know, I figure I got another 40 years or so before to, to, you know, to hopefully accomplish this mission, but I can't even fathom expanding that out to places that aren't part of our own open space. That isn't part of our sort of natural environment, just including just the actual, streets and towns i mean that's that's a that's a pretty cool goal but it absolutely speaks to me right now it sounds fantastic oh good i'm glad i'm glad it resonates with you um i also started you know the things like the history or the culture or the mm-hmm. religions i mean depending on what interests you in particular when you go out onto the map i think that's what's fast i did often think it would be great to be doing this with a different person each week because they'd say to me oh look at this this reminds me of some sort of Irish folk music or something, things that hadn't even crossed my mind. So, um, yeah, I think whatever tickles your fancy is a, a good way of starting. There's so much depth in your landscape, too. And you, you write about this, about the history and these things that you learn and you stumble across things that are ancient. And um, so there there is layer upon layer upon layer waiting there to be discovered. In the UK. Yeah, I, I'm, off, I'm, je- I'm often jealous of lovely California or say Marin County or fantastic place like that but I but one thing this map really helped me to do is I've spent too much of my life wishing I wasn't here and wishing Mm -hmm. I was there and uh, grumbling and feeling sorry for myself that I'm here and being jealous that you're there and what this map reminded me was wow this is amazing the Romans walked down this footpath this the reason this path goes along the hilltop is because thousands of years ago this was the safest way through the swamps and um, so yeah there's that's that's a, a good thing about exploring in britain i guess in california you've got some massive trees in in england we've got some really old footpaths so they're all they're all good i you know i think that sentiment is one of the things that most jumped out at me and and justin and i well we talk about this but we talk about this in prep for recording and is that there's this you know, this drive that all of us have as adventurous people where we want to go to these wild and exotic places and we want to see all parts of the world and, um, you know, and it's expensive and uh, we have to leave our families often. And so how how do we find that same kind of um, hunger for the local? How do we find that hunger, you know? And because, I mean, I live in a beautiful place. I live right on the coast, but I mean, it doesn't look like the Grand Canyon. It doesn't look like the Dolomites, you know? And so one of the things I'm curious about, you you talked about filling the holes that only expeditions can feel, and that was part of what you wanted to see if you could do. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how well you succeeded at filling that hole or whether you succeeded in filling something completely different, because maybe that 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 itch, maybe that's a different itch, you know, like going to the empty quarter versus learning more about your backyard yeah i suspect i just uh, filled a different hole i think so i love big global travel and i'd be far i certainly don't intend to pull up the drawbridge on that having done loads of it myself and say to young people today no don't go do that just go and look at the rubbish dump outside your front door that's much more interesting than china so of course there's (laughs) there's a huge potential in life for big wonderful bold adventures and proper epic wilderness out in the middle of nowhere stuff that's great i love that so this wasn't about that and when i was writing the conclusion and you're you're sort of wanting to say yeah this book's achieved all my goals i had to say it wasn't really an adventure i'm not gonna try and kid anyone that it was an adventure but it was really interesting and it, it opened my eyes to other aspects of life that I hadn't perhaps given much thought to in all my years of just chasing madly around the globe. So I don't think it's a um, a replacement for huge adventures. But you know, if you're dreaming of the adventure of a lifetime, and in those years while you're saving up the money and the time and family and work and stuff, in all that time, then why not use your evenings and weekends to get out and explore your local map? So I think you can have both in life. I, I uh, you have what a couple kids? Yeah. How old? How old are they? 
they're sort of entering the uh, dreaded teenage phase. So oh, wow. are, okay. To be honest, they're delighted I'm talking to you now because they get extended Fortnite and TikTok time while I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, w- I wondered if maybe they were younger because I, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and um, you know, we actually had somebody write us a comment, you know, lambasting, I think mostly me for not getting out on big adventures anymore these last few years because I've, you know, made made no bones about how I haven't been able to get out as much. But one of the things that I've really appreciated is, as you probably remember, you know, Steve does too, he has kids, but, um, you know, my little girls are so fascinated by just a walk around the block and it takes us an hour, you know, and like, my four-year-old was really excited a couple of weeks back to show me these monarch caterpillars that she'd found, you know? And so she'd like grasp me around the block and we go look at them and, you know, just every little thing, like they always want to stop and play with like the cracked sections of the curbs and it rained last week. So they're excited about the puddles and all these sorts of things. But, um, it, it rubs off on you, you know, in the sense that I'll, I'll do these little walks by myself, you know, and I'll walk. Now I want to go see, Oh, what are those, are those caterpillars cocoons yet? Like what's going on? You know? And I, Little things that I hadn't noticed before, little areas of, of, of front yards that are pretty cool where people have planted things and stuff like that. But I, I wondered if maybe part of it was just that if you know, when you have young kids, that, that sense that like everything is a wonder, like really, you know, I, I'm like right in the middle of that. So I, I'm still pretty excited about it, but that it's changed my outlook on, on my local area for sure. Well, Alistair, you write that you don't especially love where you live. You've had a hard time making friends and I've often felt that where I am, there's adventurous people around, but it's hard to find them, you know, and I don't feel like I, the place that I live is doesn't have a culture of adventure and that can feel, you can feel isolated at times. Um, so, uh, did, did that change how you felt about your, yourself and your place in it, in the exploration? Did you feel better about it? Did you learn well, after 52, 53, uh, quadrants. Um, did you feel more connected to it? Yeah. So one of the reasons that I really wanted to commit to trying this project was to try and offset my frustrations and resentments and boredom of and and loneliness of of living where I do in some suburban edgelands, just on the edge of a city. Um, so that was definitely a core, a motive for me doing it. And in that sense, it was fantastically successful. I found far more wildness and beauty than I'd imagined. You know, I, I'm often snooty that oh, there's no proper countryside around here. But when I started going out, I was like, there's woodland and stuff everywhere. There's, there's loads of mm-hmm. stuff. So it definitely helped me appreciate where I lived more. It definitely got me much more connected to the issues of the land that we live on in our in our neighbourhood and more concerned about trying to actually do something about it. I quite often felt that... Um, I, I care about the the planet and the environment, as, I, as I'm sure all your listeners do. But it's when you just read the news, it's like, oh, the whole Amazon's being chopped down and um, the, all the and Antarctica has melted this week. And you're like, wow, this is terrible. Well, I can't even begin to fix that. So I'll just go and have a cup of coffee and get on with my life and feel a bit depressed. But when you just go out to your little local woods and you see, hey, they're going to chop down these woods to build a McDonald's or something, then you're like, hey, I can do something about this I, and I can connect to it and feel engaged with it. So I feel much more grounded and settled and accepting of where I am for sure. I think that's been really good. Wow. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Um, we will be right back. You love adventure. We love adventure. And that is why we created Adventure Journal in print. It is the gift that we've made for ourselves and for our friends and hopefully for you that is analog, that gets away from screens, that gives you some of the most interesting, deepest and thoughtful stories from some of the best writers and photographers working in the outdoor space. We do four a year. You get free shipping and a deep discount. It's 60 bucks to have this absolutely beautiful, no batteries necessary celebration of adventure in your mailbox. Get it at adventure-journal.com. I am drinking, it's gotten cold now because we're halfway through the show. I am drinking Long Weekend Coffee. We launched Long Weekend Coffee earlier this year to bring you and us blends that are not fussy, that will take any kind of brew method that we like, whether it's at home, in a cabin, on the tailgate of a truck, doesn't matter. We have four blends. We have dark, medium, espresso roast, and a decaf. 
I think they're pretty amazing. I guarantee you will like them. Check us out at longweekend.coffee. Welcome back. We are still talking to Alistair Humphreys and so excited about it. It is just such a delight to have a conversation with you, Al. Thank you again. Um, so where we left off, we were, you were talking about, we were sort of talking about the, the macro versus the micro, it basically about like looking out big versus looking small. One of the things that changed for me during COVID where I felt like I couldn't really go anywhere, but I was, you know, I just had itchy feet. I was antsy and I would just go on these walks and I would take Seek. Seek became my best friend during COVID. And um, there's this green belt. And I actually, I wrote a feature story for AJ and Print about my experience. And I, I think that um, it was really transformative for me not trying to move through landscapes so quickly on a trail run or, you know, a mountain bike and or on skis, but actually slow down. And I, you know, the idea of, you know, you can make a kilometer as big as you want really does resonate. You know, I got to know individual plants in this one particular area. I would, there was this one um, black sage that I would always come back to and see where it was in the process of blooming and what bugs happened to be on it. And the, the sense that I have of where I live now and my connection to it is so amplified. And um, so I, I would love it for you to sort of address how your relationship with the land changed and, and why that might be important. Because one of the things that is really clear is that we, as you know, modern kind of Western consumers, we've, we have lost connection to land and we, we do get all up in arms about what's going on in the Amazon, but we don't really have a sense of what's going on in our own backyards. We don't know the names for things and you learn the names for things. And so, um, take us on that journey a little bit and, and why is that important? How can other people do kind of what you did and feel a stronger connection to what's around them? So a lot of what I did is it would echo what you just uh, detailed as your own experience of the slowing down of the paying attention the the noticing how this a, a favorite tree changes through the season so I uh, slightly aside from this but linked as I've spent for the last three years I've been climbing a tree <laughs> once a month which I have scheduled into my google calendar so again the notion of scheduling an adventure adventure into your life to make it actually a regular feature so once a month ding first Wednesday of the month I go climb my local tree and every time I climb it I look down and I'm like wow what the universe has been busy since I was last up here so much has changed and how, how have I not noticed any of that and then I sit in the tree for 20 minutes drinking a cup of tea or a coffee and up in the tree and just slow down i don't need to be charging around answering emails the entire time just slow down and it's a chance to just think a little bit about maybe what I'll, what i'll do in the next month before i come back to this tree deep breath and then i return to the mayhem of busy life um so so that has really helped my relationship with the land this sort of scheduled regular tree climb i did the same with um, a full moon walk run cycle or swim last year uh, i did a year with um anna brones american paper cut artist who i'm sure you guys know who um she we both like adventure we both like coffee so once a month we would give ourselves a task like go and have a swim and then a coffee or go out in the rain and sit under a tree and have a coffee and i would write a little essay about it and she would do a beautiful paper cut about it so again that was just an a, an excuse to force ourselves to get out into the outdoors regularly and a creative way to slow down and pay attention and just not feel the 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 compulsion I often have to just charge as fast as I could from A to B so um yeah slow down what is it um pay attention oh gosh I've forgotten it I don't know some very clever Mary Oliver things uh pay attention be astonished tell about it that's it uh, her instructions for life and I've I held that in my mind a lot you tried a couple of times, at least at least two times, if I'm recalling it correctly, to sit for an hour and just observe. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that go? Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I would t sometimes I'd go out to do this map thing and I'd be like, oh, I haven't got time to be doing my stupid map. I need to get home and check Twitter or whatever busy people <laughs> do in this day and age. And then I'd be like, Al, just stop being ridiculous. You come, you're, you're in the interesting project. You're out, you spend all your time at home moaning that you're not out in the outdoors. Now you're in a wood wishing you were back home on Twitter. You're an idiot. 
slow down, just sit down on a log and uh, t turn off the phone, no distractions, throw my watch beyond reach so I can't be distracted by the clock and just can I sit for an hour? And uh, I find it an agonizing process. You know, my mind's racing, like, oh, I'm bored, oh, I'm hungry, oh, I've got an itch. And then I have 10 brilliant ideas for an award-winning novel, but I haven't got a pen to write them down. And the mind just racing and racing. So I think a lot of this whole project was um, along the lines of mindfulness, really, just noticing what you have right now, not what's what's over there or over there, just what, what you've got now, it passes through, and that is enough. So um, I think quite a lot of the book was, a, uh, not the book, but the project on a personal level was about trying to make myself just slow down, pay attention, and accept that what I've got now is good enough, and sitting on a log in the forest is good. There's an old Buddhist, wise, Sanskrit, ancient saying that I learnt on the internet along the lines of, uh, if you're too busy with checking your emails to spend 20 minutes in the forest, then you need to spend an hour sitting on a log in a forest. So the busier yeah, you that are, passage. <laughs> yeah, the more the yeah. more that you're listening to this thinking, geez, this guy's lucky, he can sit in the woods for an hour, I can't do that. The more you're thinking that, the more you perhaps might benefit from giving it a try. Did you actually do it? Yeah, I, I do it quite often now. I mean, I wrote about it twice in the book, but I did it five, six, seven times on the in the actual um, year and uh, I, I do it uh, not I haven't started scheduling it perhaps I should but probably every couple of months what is usually when I'm like oh, I'm so busy and then I think wow I'm, this is not really that important in the grand scheme of things go and sit in the woods for an hour so your, your next book is going to be like the, the 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 12 steps to, I took to become a Buddhist basically <laughs> <laughs> well I would you know what I wouldn't be entirely unhappy if it was yeah. Justin wrote about a guy who yeah, created I, these records for the longest sits. I was just trying experience. to find his name the whole time. Like I've just been just quietly tapping on Google trying to figure. I can't remember his name. I don't know if you've heard of him, Al, but he's he's like made a point to. I, I think he actually is in the Guinness Book of World Records for sitting in the in the in one place for the longest. He goes to beautiful places. He's not just like sitting in like a Walmart parking lot or anything. But um, he's done multiple a day or two. So didn't some Greek philosopher guy live in live on top of a pole for years? Well, maybe because there's pole sitting is a is a is a big thing in Canada, um, where they the, you sit on a pole for as long as you possibly can. But there's a, that's more of a physical element. This guy we're talking about had a nice comfy chair, which probably makes it worse. I don't. I. I. I there's no. I, God. There's no way I could sit for an hour. I, I care how beautiful it was. I just. I mean, may, God. Maybe if it was. Maybe if there were like perfect waves and I was watching those or something like that. But an hour. Whew. Well, nope. that's Brendan's, you know, Brendan Leonard, our, our good friend to all of us, his theory that there's two kinds of people. There's soakers and there's non-soakers. There's people who can soak in a natural hot spring or a hot tub for as long as it takes. And then there's people that just can't. And I know two or three of us are non-soakers. And I think the third here is probably, and, I, and Brendan is definitely not a soaker. So, um, <laughs> Wish yeah. it could be. Yeah, Sounds the monkey, great. The monkey brain. Um, so Scotland has a a uh, right to roam encoded right it's codified in their law there are places like uh, in scandinavia norway sweden with um all, all i don't know how i'm pronouncing it right but all men's rotten which is uh all man's right basically to have access to lands um tied in closely with free lutes live which is a sort of open air life which we've also written about this idea of being out and connected to nature but Britain doesn't, right? Or sorry, England doesn't. Is that correct? So tell us about your um, your ability to roam free or not free and how that affected your ex experience. Okay, so I might now go off on a long rant. So when you get bored, <laughs> put up your hand and I will draw it to a close. But I'll try and be as concise as I can. But there are a few issues here. Let's start 10,000 years ago. <laughs> wherever we lived 10,000 years ago, you could just wander around the countryside and you could go wherever you want and you could do whatever you want. And you'd eat some berries and catch some fish and it was all quite nice. Uh, you could, of course, if you wanted to, eat every single berry and eat every single fish uh, and just feast and then there'd be none left and you would die. So I suppose over time there evolved uh, a notion of a right to roam responsibly. So you're roaming around the land, but you're taking care of it because it's vital. You care for it, you love it. If you care for it, it will care for you. 
And that's roughly what modern day Scandinavia has now, roughly. Allemansretten, every man's right, every person's right to roam responsibly. And I think the word responsibly is key at the end of this. But in Britain, then, so Scotland, <laughs> without going down a whole UK politics thing and dreaded conversations about Brexit, uh, well, but in simple terms, Scotland... Um, is part of uh, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, but it does have separate laws in some aspects. And one of those is they have a much looser right to roam than in England, which is based on Scandinavia's really. So in Scotland, you can wander around the hills, put up your tent uh, pretty much wherever you want. And there are some common sense restrictions, like you can't wander through a person's garden you can't wander through a farmyard full of busy machinery you can't wander through the middle of a uh, wheat field and trample down the crops you can't light a fire in the middle of that wheat field you can't leave your litter lying around all entirely common sense stuff to people who are interested in the outdoors and the adventure world and the, the whole leave no trace type principles which I'm sure we're all familiar with and to people who are interested in the outdoors just seems obvious come down south into England and we do not have that right to roam. So most land in Britain is privately owned as 8% uh, of the land is sort of common open ground. What we do have in, in, in uh, England and Wales is about 140,000 miles of public footpaths and not, some of these are thousands of years old and these go literally everywhere through towns, villages, uh, round the back of farms, they're everywhere. It's fantastic, wonderful and the majority of my time in the countryside is quite happy just wandering around these and for all my life I've mostly been kind of happy with that but trying to explore a grid square you want to see more than just what this narrow little footpath is telling you I wanted to see what was in that woodland there and generally I found the woodland had big signs up saying keep out private keep out go away you horrible poor person keep out of my woodland and I over I I've got a fairly relaxed approach to these regulations. So I would just ignore that and I'd go wandering around the woodland. Of course, I would do no harm to anything at all. And then I'd leave and no one would know I was there. And over the course of the year, I felt increasingly frustrated about how restricted my legal access to the land was. And I was frustrated for a few reasons, um, which I'll be brief on. For example, I was horrified at the state of nature depletion in Britain. Britain has one of the worst levels of nature and wildlife in the whole world. It's terrible. We've got we've almost ruined all our nature and the way we treat the land through our industrial farming is pretty horrific. So if the notion is you should not be allowed access on our land because you will damage the landscape here, then that's clearly nonsense because the way the land is being used at the moment is ruining it through industrial farming and loss of nature. I also think that because we have this culture of not being allowed access to the land, people, you can't care for what you don't know about. We've talked about this several times in this chat already. Because people are not roaming around that woodland that I was in, they don't know to care for it and how important it is to farm in a way that's sustainable for nature and the planet etc. So I started to get increasingly annoyed about the lack of access to roam responsibly and I think the key thing whenever I hear the word right to roam there's a there's a really great campaign in Britain called the right to roam and they're fantastic people and big fans but I do always like to add the little responsibly at the end of it because what I want to see is people like in Scandinavia accessing the land and doing so with love and care and then coming home and caring about the food that they buy from the shops and voting for politicians who will also care to clean up the rivers and stuff. So that's a brief potted history. And then, of course, you head over to America where the whole notion of land access and is an entirely different can of worms, which you can, I guess, either choose to talk about or not, as you wish. I'm, I'm wondering how you... Uh... I mean, was it like the first time you stepped across the no trespassing sign where you, maybe you do this all the time? I mean, but w was it like butterflies? And then by the end of it, you're like, you're not even noticing them. You're just walking wherever you want. I mean, did it take some doing? Okay, well, I, okay, well, I say this, I say this not in a glib way at all, but I think one of the key things to bear in mind is that in Britain, people aren't walking around with guns. And therefore, right, of course. if you trespass on somebody's land here, well, almost certainly nobody will even notice. I mean, I've been I've read a whole book, Micro Adventures, which is essentially based on the notion of 
go sleep on a hill. Nobody will ever see you there. You'll be totally fine. If anyone does see you, you have a nice, polite, friendly chat and then you leave. Uh, or worst case scenario, some farmer goes, get off my land. And then you leave the land. And that's the end of it. Uh, which, by the way, never well, only happened to me once in this book and in all my years of micro-adventuring, never happened. So wow. generally in Britain, you might just get shouted at by an angry farmer. Uh, you're not going to get shot. The I think one thing that is important to note, though, is that I am a, a six-foot white middle-class man. And therefore, how I feel about some farmer saying, get off my land, is different to if I was... Uh, black or a woman and so on and so in that sense the accessibility to the British outdoors isn't as widespread as I'd imagined beforehand but generally speaking I, I the only nervousness I feel is just because all my life I've been taught don't be a naughty right. boy uh, but generally I was pretty happy and actually increasingly I was just like why can't I go in this wood I'm definitely going to go walk around this wood now mm-hmm. um, so I, I got increasingly keen on the trespassing side of the campaign well you got yelled at once too when you were on a public footpath didn't you by a farmer i did get i got yelled at once yeah and interestingly then i wasn't trespassing i was on a footpath one thing that was really interesting about this whole thing was try was how much it made me try to remember to see these conversations from different sides. So the reason the farmer was angry was because he had his nice field of cows and he was busy working hard being a nice farmer and he'd get quite annoyed because every so often walkers would just walk through his field and that's, um, I guess, a little bit annoying. It's it's certainly annoying if they leave litter or if they let their dogs run around and scare the cows. And so I guess over time, he just got he just got fed up with people walking across the land, but I was legally allowed to do so. So we did it. We had a discussion about this it was and it, which is was really interesting to see things from his side which was an issue that kept popping up time and again i'd have this sort of righteous belief in something and then something would happen to make me think well hang on these other people need to live on this land and make their living from it and they have different priorities to me so yeah it's complicated living in a crowded little country yeah it sounds like it opened up your view quite a bit yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really did. It 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 hardened some of my views and it it softened some others. Um, but even on the ones that the views that I got hardened on, I think it was really helpful for helping me see different perspectives on that as well. One of the things that runs through the book is, um, I guess, a, a sense of dismay at what you see out there. You see a lot of pollution, you see a lot of junked cars and, and whatnot. And um, you just you just mentioned about how in, in in England you you have a you guys have a poor track record of taking care of your uh, natural bounty. Um, so I'm I'm wondering tell us a little bit more about like those those tensions that you saw out there and and um, and also about, I think, a really important concept of shifting baselines, that as we are struggling with climate change and, you know, oceans being depleted, that that is a, is a critical concept that can skew how we see things. And if we are not out there kind of ground truthing, which you basically you spend a year ground truthing your neighborhood, um, if we're not out there doing that, then we're not going to have a sense of that. So, so tell us about like what you those things that you saw that that troubled you and and how the shifting baselines are connected to that. Okay. So I I hope my book's not too depressing. I tried, I had to really try to offer some upticks to some of the doom and gloom because some of my early editor readers like, oh, no one's going to enjoy this book. It's really miserable. So, um, and, and I suppose part it's of that not, is It's not, by the way. It's not no, miserable. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I guess part of that is it kind of depends where you go do this adventuring. I mean, my guess is that if I spent a year walking around Marion County, I'd be like, woohoo, this is awesome. And I'd write lovely stuff. But equally, if I paid enough attention, I'm sure there'd be things there. I'd be like, whoa, hang on. This isn't actually as nice as maybe it seems. And and so Britain, we've, we're an old, crowded um, country, the first country in the world to industrialize, um, and the uh, at times of the empire rulers of half the world, and what that meant doesn't excuse, but what it explains is that we cut down pretty much all our trees. We've only got thirteen percent forestry now. Europe's a, a thir- thirty percent on average, so we've got hardly any trees. Uh, we've 
we've uh, turned all our land into farmland um, and then we made loads of factories essentially and they were decisions that had been made over hundreds of years but I grew up in the English countryside and I've always thought oh the English countryside is beautiful look at those lovely green hills and there's a tr one nice tree on the top of it you might have seen in the news recently that tree that famous tree that got cut down in Britain and everyone in Britain was so sad that oh they've chopped down our most famous and beautiful tree that's really bad and on the one hand I was quite um delighted that wow a lot of people do care that this tree has been cut down but mostly I wanted to say hang on why is there only one tree in this entire country you're missing the lack of trees for the single tree this is a bigger problem here we've got we've got nothing here and this leads on to shifting baseline syndrome so I used to think, oh, England's lovely green countryside and I can hear a few birds tweeting around and that's lovely. That's how countryside should be. But unfortunately, now that I'm an adult, everything's really bad and the world's all doomed. But what shifting baseline syndrome reminds you is that if you speak to my father, what nature was like when he was a little boy in England was much better than when I was a little boy. And you ask grandfather and grandfather and grandfather, what they saw as normal nature is totally different to me. But because I just grew up with that level of nature, I've always thought, oh, that's what nature should be. We need to try and get back to what it was when I was a little boy. And that's the notion of shifting baselines, whereby each generation, we accept a worse condition for our planet on the assumption that that's normal because it's all that we've ever known. Um, and one scientist I talked to, he believes that this is the single greatest issue for the conservation movement. Our general erosion of acceptance of what is what is uh, an acceptable level of nature in the landscape right yeah i just keep i keep coming back to well for, first of all i do i would have to say that the book is is optimistic it's it's upbeat but you yeah, i think you you take a a clear-eyed view of these things that are all around you for good and bad and um I think what you experienced and, and, you know, what I've experienced, I mean, I just can't stress for enough people to, to get the seek app and, and go learn the names of plants and, you know, get your star walk and learn the names of stars. I mean, the sense that you have of living in the world and being connected to it is, it can be profound. I mean, that, that's what happened for me and, um, and having a sense of how things unfold through the seasons. I don't know if you've read Aldo Leopold's a sand County almanac, which is, you know, hailed kind of rightfully for its section arguing for new land ethic, which a new relationship with the land, which kind of helped galvanize the environmental movement. The thing that my biggest takeaway was how what a keen observer of the lands around him that Aldo Leopold was and how what he knew about the critters, the birds, how things changed through the seasons. And I, I think that one of my lessons from your book was I come back to the idea of the nature deficit syndrome. Like clearly this culture, the people in this culture need a lot, right? Mental health, these issues are at all time highs, all this sort of stuff. And yet we know like there's this hunger that we're trying to fill up with these other things. And sometimes that may be expeditions, but I, I think it's ultimately it's connection. And it's not just connection with people, but it's connection with nature, which we're a part of. And so like this, the sense of getting out and, knowing it personally feels really, really critical to me, both from an environmental conservation perspective, but also just purely from a personal perspective. I mean, did you feel, you sort of talked about this time that you spend out there when you need to like kind of reset yourself. Did, did you feel like your relationship and your kind of internal internals were changed from your time spent observing much more closely? Yeah, that very much had a big impact on me. Um, and before I go off on my latest uh, long-winded waffling answer, I'll also add Merlin to your list of apps, which listens to birdsong. Uh, that's mm -hmm. an absolutely fantastic one. So when I started this book, I thought it was going to be Microadventures Take Two. Al the Adventure has a fun time zooming around the local hills where he lives. And yet the book's nothing like that at all. Uh, I never set out to write a nature book. I don't know anything about nature or science or anything. I've, I've always been 
willfully non-political in my public life. I've been like, oh, Al, the nice guy, adventure guy. Um, so it's really by paying attention to this book that it just wrote it. All these issues became far more um, clear and relevant to me. I mean, that uh, one, the book uh, Aldo Leopold that you were mentioning about, he writes about uh, ecological grief. You know, one of the problems, once you start to see how wrecked the land is, then you end up with this ecological grief that you're carrying around everywhere. Like, that's not a lovely green hillside. That is a desert of grass with not a single insect growing in there. There's this sort of grief that comes once you start to learn about the, the problems that are there. Um, and then the, the notion of nature disconnectedness or disconnection nature disconnection nature deficit um is something that i kept coming to time and again on this book in terms of um there's all sorts of endless statistics aren't there about how children to, so children in britain spend less time outdoors than prisoners um they spend more time on their screens uh, than doing anything else um there's a there's a nice um, app and a uh, fellow podcast called a thousand hours outside which is kids spend a thousand hours a year on their screen so this uh, woman Ginny set out to have a campaign to well let's spend a thousand hours outside as well and and isn't it ridiculous that you might some, you might say to someone right this year you have to spend a thousand hours outside and they're like, whoa that's that's a lot of time outside well let's say exactly how much time you spend on twitter and tiktok so we are completely disconnected from society and what i personally found from my experience this year was that Every time I went out on these trips, even when I felt busy and stressed or it was raining and grim outside, every time I felt better afterwards. So it was better for my physical health, it was better for my mental health. By going slowly with these apps we've talked about, I learned more about nature and I learned to care more about nature and, and the problems that, that are on our land. And I realized how all of these things connect with, they're all connected together if we can get more people outside more often paying attention with a greater access of roaming responsibly then they're going to care more about fixing nature fixing the planet cleaning up the rivers they're also going to come home feeling physically uh, healthier and fitter um, and uh, mentally happier and then hopefully going to eat some healthier vegetables from the farm rather than junk food grown with endless corn which completely destroys the land and round and round and round it goes so it seemed not easy but quite simple to me the power of just doing something like this regularly and it can be where wherever you live on whatever amount of time you have available in your own life i think and free i mean just <laughs> yes. walking out the door i mean it's it's free yeah, so. it, this, this trip was certainly cheaper than row. This this year was certainly cheaper than rowing across the Atlantic Ocean or something like that. Why? why? There's no Starbucks out there. Speaking of coffee, true. because we can't go too long with speaking about coffee. One of the things I loved about the book is, is just your frequent stops. And mm -hmm. uh, there were pub stops for beer, but <laughs> there were also stops where you made coffee. Like you didn't go to your thermos of coffee. You made coffee. So... What was your coffee kit? How did you like? How often were you like caffeinating in the middle of every grid? What tell us about that? <laughs> so the having coffee outdoors is, I for me it was mostly an extension of sitting on the log for a while. You know, I could most places I was going were there's I mean, most of the grid squares there was a shop on for example you know it's a pretty built-up area uh, i'm certainly never very far from a cafe um sometimes i did take a thermos flask of coffee and that was generally just to keep me warm in cold old winter but the, what i really enjoyed was that when i would just take my camping stove and make coffee out there and the, you know that's a nice thing to do and a nice cup of coffee but more importantly it was like right Al, you could just kind of sit in this wood or on this park bench for 10 minutes while the coffee brews Whew, slow down that's fine um and in terms of, i can tell you that you're a coffee aficionado so my technique with uh generally is one of two things is uh either an aeropress um or a um a mocha pot does that does that translate to america mm -hmm. a mocha pot mm -hmm. um, we know yeah, mocha pots uh, Yes. Okay, we're backwards, cool. but we're not that backwards. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's generally one of those things, strong and black, and uh, just slow down and enjoy being out there. I, I got to get you some of our coffee that we're doing now the long weekend. I got to get some because Anna and I are friends and 
yeah, coffee makes our world go round. So we're going to have to get some in your hands. Sorry, Justin, I interrupted well, you. Go ahead. I just, I, that, this is something that I've kind of picked up on doing myself the last few years, which is, you know, just making coffee in places that I wouldn't normally otherwise do it. Um, mostly for me, it's like going up and fishing at the, at these lakes nearby, which, yeah, it's like, it's like camping, but you're not supposed to have, you know, you can't camp there. Uh, you can't have a fire. There's you know, all sorts of things you're not supposed to do, but I still bring my little coffee pot and sometimes I'll heat up soup. Um, uh, my little, you know, camp stove at the back of my truck, or if I ride my bike up there, I'll sometimes I'll take my coffee kit with me, but I've started doing it even just like in the park, like at our little neighborhood park. And it, it's like the, like this little act of rebellion in a way, uh, even though it's, you're not doing anything wrong, but people will look at you like, what is that guy doing? You know, you get your little backpacker stove set up and there's a cafe, there's two cafes within 50 yards, you know, but, uh, I don't, if you haven't done that, do it. Like if it's, it's one thing to make coffee while you're camping, but to make coffee in a place that you wouldn't normally do it. It's just another little like opening into the sort of the magic of what like your, you know, your little area can be. It's just, it's just a weird little thing that just takes you out of your normal day. And it's, it's a really special moment. So I was, I was happy to see that too. I would also add to that, Justin, what you're doing is the notion of uh, doing that with your kids, like on a Saturday morning of going to the local wood and making a hot chocolate or a mm-hmm. bacon sandwich or whatever it is, but to have that out in the woods. So that turns breakfast into adventure and that's a that's a really nice thing to do so we're gonna bring this to a close unfortunately because it's so fun um justin did you have anything you wanted to ask and alistair is there anything that we have missed themes or otherwise that uh you want to make sure that people know about i want to know if you if if at the end of this you know have you did you find places that you're returning to did you find you know like i'm sure you did but little little benches little woods that are now special places to you yeah absolutely so my um instinct whenever i've been running or cycling generally is to head for woodlands or contour lines and hills that's what i really like but where i live there's quite a lot of flat open marshland drained marshland which until i did this year had always struck me as just ah. Oh, boring and empty but actually I really like that it's atmospheric it's empty it feels ancient and and quiet um so yeah really the marshes I've come to really enjoy and go back to hmm. quite often that's cool interesting I'm not really a marsh band but I could get I could see that I could get that but there's and a lot you, going on there oh yeah. yeah these well these marshes they're not like um what is it where the crawdads sing or they're not good old american <laughs> marshes this is basically uh, to you guys i guess and to me before i started would just like like ah it's an empty flat field with nothing in it so um but a big sky and of course living where i live massive electricity pylons stringing all over everywhere so there's not much illusion of wildness but i've come to quite enjoy the pylons as well though are you in the Pylon Ad- Admirers Club that I didn't <laughs> learned about from you? <laughs> well, there were various clubs in my book, weren't there? There's the Pylon Appreciation Society. There's the Cloud Appreciation Society. Um, oh, and Telegraph. I think we're all in that. that do... I think everybody's oh, yeah. in, in that in that society. Yeah, we have to pay fifteen pounds to actually be in it. Get <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a card. You know, yeah. one of the things that I I, I I loved about the book were all the just I learned so much about birds and how they make sounds differently than humans and you know I'm, I'm sure a lot of these are the result of your googling when you got back but they're you you give us such a it's not just owl running around in the world like you you teach us so much about the world around you and and how that your your local world is connected to the broader world and it's a it's a wonderful um yeah it's a wonderful tour of small and big at the same time Oh, good. I'm really, I'm glad you say that. I'm particularly glad that it's not too British-centric. I, the, the whole random learning part of it was very new to me. So I went to, uni- I was lucky I went to university, but geez, I wasted my time at university basically <laughs> yeah. read, reading adventure books. And yet this year I'd come home with, because I was making myself just try to believe that everything was interesting. That was the sort of, right, you have to just be interested in everything. Once you start to adopt that, uh, mindset then I just come home and start googling random things like wow this is really interesting actually and actually I, I had to cut 130,000 words from the book um, and I still think it's probably a few thousand words too long just because I and they're about the most random subjects imaginable so um, yeah there was quite a brain dump of googling I, I spent I did a lot of time on Wikipedia over the last year 
Yeah, for those of you who don't know, a, a typical book, you know, might have what eighty thousand words. So, if you cut one hundred and thirty, that's a lot. <laughs> that that reminds me, I, I I I did I was curious about something else, which is that, um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the a lot of the sections of the book, you know, whether it's like a burnt out car, like you'd mentioned, or just sort of crumbling industrial sort of zones. There's a sense that. The, the like at least in that part of of where you are that the civilization the the sort of infrastructure built on top of the national environment is weakening right um and i'm just curious if after an experience like this because you described how so many of these grids are kind of gray spaces just filled with buildings and things like that if you can kind of see through that and now you see the land beneath it now you see the the sort of ecosystem that this is all built on top of um, I had that experience when I moved to San Francisco a long time ago after living basically in the countryside for my whole life. And I was shocked by the concrete and shocked by the, by the electricity and shocked by the lights. And then I'd noticed like little tufts of grass that I recognized or like little, little bushes that I, that I knew that we had from where I grew up. And after a while, especially we started riding a bike around, um, it, it, almost like a scene from a sci-fi movie where the buildings kind of would just lift and you would just see what was underneath. And I felt more connected to it. Um, more, I could, I felt more, I could identify with that place more than I could with the big buildings. And I'm wondering if something like that kind of happens as well with your experience after a certain amount of time, kind of the fluff of humanity kind of goes away, or maybe that maybe it's screwed stuff up too much and you can't, but I mean, do you get, can you look past that at all? I actually came to really like the industrial side of things like these giant chimneys or weird metal pipe things that. I've, I've got no idea what they are, but I, I was really interested starting nosing around the back of industrial yards and stuff. So I was in, became, I, came, I actually really enjoyed the weeks that were so-called ugly. I, in many ways, they were my favourite. And one aspect that I really liked about that, which I think does link to what to your um, experience, is the notion of rewilding. Oh, sorry, excuse me, of rewilding, the way trees start to grow up through the sidewalk. or And if you neglect to... A, an industrial yard for 10 years then trees start to grow and the re and the natural world comes back so although these places were quite ugly and quite sometimes falling down and derelict they actually filled me with hope which was just yeah. if we don't screw this place up too much and just step back a bit nature will come pouring and bouncing back as and a lot of the world saw that during lockdown didn't they sort of wildlife coming into city streets and um, chernobyl now the nuclear cities are wonderful woodlands so yeah i actually was quite uplifted by the so-called in ugly industrial things and the scope for rewilding there and that comes through in the book i mean that like that's like it's clear that you have that, that you're pretty excited about that that's you know the the industrial zones. And it's the, another reason that it's not a, a depressing book. I mean, we, I guess we've kind of harped on some of the, some of the downsides of, of civilization and stuff like that, but you do a really good job of bringing life into the, into these sorts of things. And it, it's it, there's that optimism is, is, is clear when you're discussing these sort of uh, areas where, where life is coming back. Thank you. It's a book of observation is what it is. It's observing. It's taking the time to look. And so you see, to be binary, you see the good and the bad, and, and you talk about both. And um, you, you said earlier that you thought about this originally maybe as like this is micro adventures, you know, two. I see it as a beautiful companion to micro adventures and complementary because it's not just it's not about the moving and the going; it's about the slowing and the seeing, and and that changes you, you know, in ways that uh, just moving quickly never will. Well, hopefully it'd be nice if um, people do both. You know, they load up their bike and their tent and their pack raft and they go for the weekend, which is what we've all been encouraging people to do for years and loving doing ourselves. But now when they actually get to that place, then they do a bit of this other stuff as well, of like noticing the nature and the problems and looking for solutions and then coming home and actually being being an activist in some ways of what can I actually do to fix these places as well? Yeah, it's it's clear that there's a through line that you are that you want to through your experience encourage people to have their own transformative, um, caring revolutions of caring about their backyards. So, um, to take us out, I'm wondering. I have a, a passage that I would love you to read that I thought really captures the book. Would you mind? Do you have that there? I do. Yeah, and thank you okay, for um, picking this one up. Um, okay. 
the more... Oh, by the way, I'm now going to read this and think, oh, man, this sucks. I wish I could rewrite that paragraph. We get it. We get it. No, no, it's what, great. What, once, once I've written a book, I literally never open it ever again. Um, <laughs> That's in case I see move. spelling mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> right, anyway, with that uh, a disclaimer aside, here we go. The more I pay attention, the more I notice. The more I notice, the more I learn. The more I learn, the more I enjoy. The more I enjoy, the more I pay attention. This positive feedback loop of learning and loving is what schools dream of generating in the classroom. But in my case, it didn't take hold until I began mooching around my neighbourhood with a camera, a notebook and a handful of apps. On my map, there are no forests free from litter, no hills to raise the heartbeat, no clean rivers to swim in, no ocean with crashing waves, no town bustling with people who enjoy the same things as I do. But the days when I set out to explore, to cycle, walk, photograph, sit and think, were becoming the highlight of my weeks. Out here, I did not notice what I was missing, but rather celebrated all that I was finding. Man, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Thank so you. this is Alistair Humphreys. His book is Local. It is one of, I believe, 12 or 13 or more books that you have written, I think. 16. 16. Sorry to cut you 25% short. Uh, <laughs> and so we'll, we're going to put all Al's info in, in you know, the usual places that you can get them on our website and, and our YouTube notes and all that. So, But uh, he's easily found, alistairhumphreys.com. His book is local. And, and when um, is the book out now? I should have asked you this right at the beginning. But uh, what is the publication date? Publication date is 11th of January. Okay, so upcoming. We're recording this in late November so of 2023. So take a good look at it. Make sure you follow him um, if you don't already. He, to my mind, Alistair Humphreys has done as much as anybody through microadventures and through his communication and encouragement and speaking to get people out there and making themselves better and the planet better for it. Al, again, thank you so much. It's been a joy. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been a big fan of you guys for years. So it's been a it's been great. great. Thank you. Thanks, right. man. All right, everybody, take mm -hmm. care. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.